You're listening to Bridge the Gap Season 4, a podcast dedicated to inform, educate, and influence the future of housing and services for seniors. This podcast is powered by supporting partners Propel Insurance, Inquire, LTC REIT, The Bridge Group Construction, and Salinity. Learn more at btgvoice.com. Welcome to Bridge the Gap Podcast, the senior living podcast with Josh and Lucas. We have a great guest on today. You're going to want to sit and listen to this for sure, no matter what you're doing. We want to welcome Jane Rhodes. She's with JSR Associates, and she's been an architect and a designer in the industry for so long. Jane, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Lucas. Josh, good to be here. It was great to see you at our Ignite conference, you know, such a, an intimate group of, you know, almost a couple hundred people um, at the Bobby Hotel in Nashville. It was great to see you there. What did you think about the event? It was my first out of COVID event. So it was all this weird trepidation. And then all of a sudden you realize that it's all like-minded people and opportunities. And actually it, it was igniting for me because I'm older and I got to see younger people who were there. And I spoke to one young guy. He was like 24. He's like, I was born in 1994. And I'm like, great. Oh my gosh, he could be my grandson. Um, but he was interested in the industry. And so that was very exciting for me. Um, the other part was I met a couple of people who synergistically have experience in some things I've been trying to figure out. And when you get those kinds of networking opportunities and sit and doodle on the back of you know, coasters in this case, um, on the rooftop garden, um, after the amazing presentation that we had from Scott Hamilton, it was just like, after all those different pieces and parts, and we sat until it got dark, um, to figure out the world of the future of, of small residential assisted living. So it, for me, it was a great start to getting back into meeting and being with people again. So let's talk about the things that are quote unquote, uh, burning on your heart and the things you're trying to quote unquote figure out. Um, a big topic in the industry for many years has been affordable housing or uh, maybe a better term, attainable housing, places for uh, older adults to live that they can actually afford. It's been a very difficult solution or problem to solve. You have something that you've just launched. It's a not-for-profit called Live Together. Talk to us about this new launch and the reasons behind it. So Live Together came about because I couldn't, in my standard practice of senior living consulting, make it happen. And so as we were evaluating the gaps and seeing the different gaps, it was like, all right, how do we recreate everything that I've learned in 30 years? How do we take all those different lessons learned from the U.S., from China, from all these places we've worked and recreate something that is an intergenerational model? We know people do better when they have more normalcy in their lives. We have segregated folks and it's in the financial market it's in the economic market we have done it by age by ageism we've done it by um ethnicity and religion and all these different things that we've separated people instead of bringing them together so the concept is is that we look at things from an intergenerational perspective but also evaluating how do we create a long-term care continuum that isn't necessarily moving a person through the continuum but providing housing that's not only accessible from a physical perspective, but also allowing housing to have access to amenities and services. So the University of Buffalo did a wonderful job of redefining universal design as being something that's not only accessible physically, but it's also accessible to amenities and services. And that would be healthcare, food, 
people, um, you know, access to children, uh, access to animals. Um, Dr. Bill Thomas years ago uh, started the Eden Alternative that then morphed into the Greenhouse Project. And I, I got to meet him really early on when he first started and I was like completely enamored, but I also thought, okay, this guy's onto something. We, we can do something different in our industry. And the conversations about not reaching the tipping point and looking at affordability at the same time, we have a, a an opportunity right now to meet like 60 to 70% of our population that needs different types of housing, different types of access to services. And, and no one's really doing it because it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's not a simple process of A plus B equals C. So we've been looking for multifamily, I think is actually part of the solution because multifamily is looking at different types of affordable solutions, but now we wanna mix that in with access to services and amenities. And that's how we've started looking at the continuum, um, whether it's a virtual village that you start with, or you start with evaluating who your community resources are that are existing and build off of those. But you have to have the collaboration and the partnerships in order to make any of this happen. And so we've looked at universities and college programs and everything else, because if you don't have a solid workforce and a workforce development plan, you don't have a good community and it, it's all interlinked, right? It, it has to look at all of them um, to, to make it all happen. Wow, that is a lot to unpack, Jane. You just gave us a lot to talk about and uh, we're gonna try to squeeze this into 20 minutes. So there may be a part two that has to happen here, Lucas, I'm not really sure. So intergenerational, you talked about a lot of different things. You know, one of the, I, I think the secrets here that we could dive into with you is, is the strategy for execution. Because I think in talking with people over the last several years, it's kind of become a little bit of a buzzword. So I think people recognize the benefits, but to your point, it's not easy. It's not a typical, Hey, we've got a, a cookie cutter developer model that we can just go plant in all these things and magically intergenerational programming and housing happens. So what are some of the steps that you're taking to try to figure this out that could help to influence our audience who also would love to be part of helping figure that out? So I think that if you look at intergenerational from the living perspective, so I'll give you an example, it's probably the easiest way to do it. So when we were looking at this, we thought, all right, if we have students that are in nursing programs, social work programs, et cetera, and they need to do practicum, how come they're not living with elders to understand that? So part of it became looking at if we have families combined with elders and all the apartments um, or building units are completely accessible. Um, and we can also provide an opportunity for students to stay as part of it. So whether that's in co-housing, like you would think of, you know, common.com or, or we live or we work kind of ideas. If you took that kind of concept and you added that in, then if you have a multifamily project, you can actually have those natural pieces and parts that happen. The other thing is from working with Generations of Hope, we realized quickly that you have to have a place where everyone can come together and everyone signs up when they move in. And it's kind of like a pledge to be part of an intergenerational community model. So a lot of times we'll look at a vulnerable population. So if you have young women aging out of foster care with one child, like a project called Genesis that's located in DC, they have elders move in knowing that part of their commitment is X number of volunteer hours with 
helping those young women become more independent and helping them work so that they can actually employ themselves and, and move and grow. So, so it's a cooperative process and it's part natural process that happens, but it's also part programmed. And you can't over-program because you can't force relationships, right? But you can encourage relationships. So my moment of success for that particular project was going in and I went through and I helped different issues in their apartments. Each one had something that they had a question about the seniors did. And so one of the elders had written on the board, if you need babysitting, um, call such and such number. She goes, better yet, just come knock on my door. I live in room, you know, in apartment 105. And I thought, okay, that's success. That's success right there. Because you already have outreach and people knowing why they're there and bringing people together. Um, and it's, and it's not, unnatural that we do that. It's just that you have to foster it and you have to provide space for it and a reason for being. So it's purposeful. It's intentional. You balance the number of elders with the number of families and the potential of vulnerable vulnerable folks. And those vulnerable folks could be students because if you think about a student can be vulnerable at that one point in their life, or it could be an underserved youth that is aging out of the foster care program who's enrolled in school, but they need support. So it's it's inter support and interdisciplinary in terms of the approach. Not easy and a little complicated, but it does work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's obviously one of the things that is working that you've uncovered, and it's obviously not easy. What would you say thus far in in designing and implementing intergenerational housing? Have you seen a particular pattern of the biggest obstacle to overcome? Uh, as you start working on these projects? There are some regulatory barriers. So I, I had a, a woman, um, Christine Foster, she contacted me out of the Corning, New York area. And she goes, I've been to your presentations. I want to do this. These are my obstacles I've found. So um, until we worked on this one project in DC, the aging department and the child welfare services had never been in the same room together, ever. You know, so so making the that that bridge because people are afraid that the regulatory barriers are going to be too big because child welfare says X, uh, licensing for older adults says Y. So so then it was like, all right, so if regulatory barriers, we've definitely impacted that with Facility Guidelines Institute licensing code. We've changed all of that. It has its own book. We've got a lot more going on there. We've changed some things in the building codes. We've changed some things in NFPA. Um, and when I say we, it's a global we. There's a lot, a lot of people, really smart people who've worked through so many of those kinds of barriers. Um, but regulatory-wise and getting it down to the grassroots level is harder because you need to work with the local authorities having jurisdiction so that they understand what you're trying to achieve. And you have to balance fair housing with this concept because if someone says, well, you have to let anyone move in. Okay, that's cool. But they've got to commit to X, Y, Z. And, and so there's a, there's a balance to that. So I would say understanding and regulatory issues have actually become some of the larger barriers, but giving people opportunities to say, well, how do I overcome that? It's like, put them, put both regulators in the room together, have a conversation. So the, the Mathers Institute always says, have a cup of coffee and over a cup of coffee, anything can happen. So, you know, I've heard many people who are trying to, in this space are like, I drink a lot of coffee, you know, because <laughs> you're trying to help people get a better sense of where they're going. So another question. So I, I do believe, as you have said, um, this is probably the intergenerational concept and, and the program and the, the communities that do this um, probably have some of the greatest potential to meet 
the largest amount of underserved um, segments of our of our society. Do you find as you're working these programs through, do the financial markets support and understand this, or do you find a lot of time you're having to spend educating and just uh, trying to help them understand what you're trying to achieve? You are so spot on. You've just like summarized my last three years of research of, of trying to figure out how financially what won't work and what could work. Um, and so uh, it's not your typical developer. It is now, I used to work at Ericsson in the, in the CCRC marketplace for eight years in the beginning of my career. And there it's very hard to change the mindset of we're going to move services to people instead of the other way around. Financially making it work if you're down into a certain lower income economic level, say you have all 202s and you have all you know tax credit projects that you're trying to combine or work together with, um, you want to evaluate that in the context of there is a philanthropic component that you have to almost have to have. If you move up into the middle market where people, I mean, if you can imagine the assisted living being $2,500 a month instead of $12,000 a month, you have a product there that, that people could actually utilize and that could, they could afford. There is a market for that. So, so it, it moves up incrementally. It gets a little easier, obviously, the more money you have. Um, the traditional finance in terms of bond financing and other types, it doesn't, people aren't, can't wrap their minds around it. Um, and I've worked with some really super smart financial people. So it's really become more of evaluating it from a different perspective and developers who have, you know, check boxes to that they're trying to fulfill. We have a project in Detroit that we've been looking at Jefferson Chalmers working with a great developer, met him through Smart Growth America. And he, he really gets it because he knows what he needs. We're just trying to figure out now, how do we do that? And if we need a philanthropic upstart for the sticks and bricks part, we can do that as long as we can make this operations sustainable. And when you try to add a nurse and a social worker and PTOT into your building model, we're not, you know, from a property management, people are like, no way. And I go, well, hang on. What if we added an outpatient PTOT clinic that also serves not just the population, but the community at large? What if we have our own home health care agency and we provide those services to folks in the building, but we also provide those services to the community at large? Then you start having uh, two smaller profit centers and you take the, that money and you put it back into the project. So, so it's a, just a different way of thinking. And it, it's just like the grassroots part of it. You know, and we've been looking at adult foster care in Michigan. And, and that's where I was talking with Vibrant Life at, at Inspire because we had all these conversations and because I think your reimbursement level could be higher. And we're like, well, if we could do that, then we could actually staff and have an assisted living extended care component as an apartment in a multifamily building, right? And I got the healthcare guys on the AHJ side to say, yeah, you can do that. You know, this is, these are the criteria, but yeah, we'll let you do that. So when was the last time you saw an assisted living component completely integrated into a multifamily intergenerational environment? You know, so finances are tricky, but I, I, I'm not to a completely working model that won't require some philanthropic upfront, but I'm trying very hard to stay away from the philanthropic every year I got to raise X because that's not, to me, is not sustainable and reimbursements are unreliable. So you're trying to balance both. Wow. Lucas, is your mind blown yet? <laughs> yeah, wheels are spinning. <laughs> so let's move the conversation forward here because we could get in the weeds for you with you for like, I feel like 
a lot of time here. And I know our audience is going to want to connect with you to get in the weeds if, if you'll take time to do that. But let's talk about just your ability to impact and influence. So right now you have this organization, you're obviously a pioneer on the intergenerational front and actually working with a lot of different people to actually make it happen. My hope is that you are going to uh, make a huge impact. But right now, what would you say with your organization and with you personally, what are the things that you need to come in place to kind of take this to the next level where you have models in place that really can influence the industry to where more people can have the opportunity to do this in more markets? That's a super question because we have that conversation a lot internally. So I think that we have, we've set up uh, three advisory councils um, so that folks who are part of the council can also work on projects and, you know, be paid for services on the, as they work through projects with us. Um, and we have one as the Institute. So I would say, you know, funding is always a piece, right? It was why we created the nonprofit. Um, that's why we did the motorcycle ride to Environments for Aging, so we can raise a little bit of money. So, so we raised some money there. We're working on United Way. Um, we actually have a United Way code. So if any companies are, are looking at wanting to do United Way contributions, that's a great way. We also on Amazon Smile and all the other, any little thing we could figure out that would you know, help contribute to that. Um, so we're also looking at AHRQ grants to do workshops because we think that the workshop component is where we're going to be able to dig into the grassroots of a neighborhood and a community and figure it out. So we're looking at that for Cumberland, Maryland. We're looking at that for Meridian, Mississippi, and we're looking at that um, potentially for upstate New York and maybe Detroit. It's going to depend a little bit on the on the Detroit um, demographic of what we need there. So um, it's the seed money part, as you guys know. Like if, if you have a project, how many developers have said, if it's shovel ready, I'm ready. And, and so that's one of the reasons we created the nonprofit too, because we thought if we could raise money, we could make more sites be shovel ready, right? Because there's always the zoning process. And when you can make zoning folks smile because you're doing something like this, I figured that was a great indication that we had, we're onto something. Um, so I would say that it's, it's partially the funding for that, but it's also having additional partners who are interested in building the Institute, for example. What does person-centered care mean to you? What, what do you think is the best uh, training that you could possibly give to someone that you're trying to train somebody to understand what person-centered care is, to understand the person as a whole, not as a diagnosis. Oh, I love that. So you did mention, I, I saw a little bit on social about your charity bike ride. How did that go? Was that fun? It was great. Um, I also got to check off a bucket list. So for those of you who are Harley riders, you will know, or motorcycle riders, you'll know the, the tail of the dragon. So I got to do the tail of the dragon with a friend of mine. It's it's 318 twists and turns and 11 miles. And I successfully did it, scared the crap out of myself a couple of times, but I, I managed to do it. And uh, we we got to Environments for Aging. We had a really successful conference there uh, for four days. Ida was coming up the you know in the middle. And so we're like, hey, let's hang out here for one more day. And then we went, I went west and then north um, and ended up having a live together meeting in Cumberland before I went home. So it, it was great. We raised almost $5,000 uh, for, the, for the cause. So we were excited about that. Um, and we're gonna work on institute, uh, uh, institute training and programming um, with that, with the money that we, we got from that coupled with some other grant stuff that we've been doing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was one of those um, good for you personally, great for you professionally, uh, all combined into one like two week period of time where you came off and you just felt like you had the biggest adventure you'd had in a long time. 
Oh, that's so cool. Super exciting. So I think me and Lucas got to get Harleys for the next one. Can we write that <laughs> off, Lucas? Can we write off Harleys? I know. I just want to get a sidecar with Jane. <laughs> I just thought I could visual. have a dog with goggles, you know, like <laughs> I, just, I just got the funniest visual. I'm never going to be able to get out of my head. <laughs> Jane, me in the sidecar holding dog. We're We're good. We're good. <laughs> That's great. I'm up for that. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Jane, it, it was great to see you at Ignite. It's great to have this conversation with you. It definitely won't be our last. I know our listeners are going to want to connect with you. We're going to put all of this in the show notes to make sure that everybody knows how to connect and get with Jane. Um, it's been a phenomenal conversation. Jane, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, you guys. We look forward to talking to you more. And thanks to everybody for listening to another great episode of Bridge the Gap. Thanks for listening to Bridge the Gap podcast with hosts Josh Crisp and Lucas McCurdy. If you are informed, educated, or influenced by this episode, we want to know. Leave a comment on social media or contact us in the show notes. Powered by supporting partners, Propel Insurance, Inquire, LTC REIT, The Bridge Group Construction, and Salinity. Learn more at btgvoice.com.